Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we'll sit down with Matt DeFerrante from ZK Labs to talk about the security of blockchain clients. So quick update before we start this episode. We have an upcoming event we want to share with you. Um, it's happening in Berlin on September 5th. It's called the Zero Knowledge Summit. It's all about zero knowledge topics, uh, CK snarks, and privacy. So if you'd like to apply, please check it out at zeroknowledge.fm slash summit and follow the link to our application form. There's still a couple spots left. So yeah, be sure to get it in soon. Also, this episode ran a little bit long, so we will be releasing an extra segment and adding the link to this in the show notes if you want to hear a little bit more from Matt. Cool. So here's the episode. Hey, Frederick. Hello, hello. So today we're here with Matthew DeFerrente. Um, he is one of the people in the scene. He's been around for a long time, and he's also the founder of something called ZK Labs. Uh, it's very close in name to the Zero Knowledge podcast or the ZK podcast. Uh, Matt, nice to have you. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, and so, yeah, as a, as a, you mentioned, yeah, my, my name is Matthew DeFerrante. I'm the founder of ZK Labs, and we mostly do sort of security consulting, auditing for smart contracts, um, and that's our sort of main activity. But we also do um, cryptography research and scalability research and and uh, sort of try to do community projects that I find interesting in the long term for, for the space. A joke that we make over here is that the name comes from the fact that the hosts have zero knowledge. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering if you have the same joke, CK <laughs> or, or if people have confused it when hiring you. <laughs> uh, definitely no confusion uh, <laughs> so far. Um, I, I don't think we make the same joke about ourselves. I think that would be maybe counterintuitive to business. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What What first got you excited about blockchain technology? Um. So I think. If we go back as to when I first heard about blockchain generally, obviously with Bitcoin, kind of most people who are in Ethereum was, were exposed to Bitcoin first. And um, it was because of my personal interest in security that I heard about it at first as a, uh, I think somebody, a friend of mine had emailed me the Bitcoin white paper that they found on the uh, Cyberpunk slip mailing list. And, you know, for the first few years, other than just being sort of a experiment, um, I, I saw it used on darknets, right? That was like the first use case. And I think it Bitcoin really got popular when um, they or I guess, or got its first round of news when it started getting accepted by WikiLeaks um, for donations because pay, PayPal and, or, and whatever they were using at the time got pulled. And, you know, people always sort of make, a, make it out to be that Bitcoin's like a main use case for oh, drug markets and, th and things like that. But honestly, there were many different ways to do, to do like, anonymous payments even before Bitcoin, and there are now still, they're just 
less reliable than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just a better solution because of its uncensorable payments. But actually, I I didn't find it that interesting as a currency. Again, I got because you know there were actually alternatives, and the price was extremely unstable very early on. And uh, I I sort of sort of just kept a little bit of an eye on it. Um, I, I had really the assumption that this Bitcoin and sort of blockchain in general are very complex, and I think it'll take a long time for people to realize. I guess it's been like a decade now, if you think about it. But um, yeah. I, I thought it was going to take a very very long time, and, and people would not understand that I, I kind of vastly underestimated people's desires for speculating on new assets. <laughs> I really didn't think that the Bitcoin was going to be at, at where it was in 2013 even, or much less now. But um, so I, you basically, I just kind of kept an eye on it. Um, I, I sort of heard it mentioned every once in a while just because of being ex exposed to the security space. But uh, I really got much more into uh, the blockchain, especially like working professionally in it uh, when, when I sort of heard Ethereum come out. I first heard about Ethereum from Vlad Zamfir, where we knew each other before Ethereum. We had met um, at some other uh, event. And uh, like I thought, you know, the, to take the blockchain, sort of the ability to do, uh, to have a decentralized system for, you know, consistency and a consensus backing the state of the system, and uh, the ability to actually run applications where the state is backed by this consensus security was far more interesting than just a currency. And so, um, we're, you know, around the time that Ethereum was launching, I was getting more into it. Uh, you know, I went to the first few events in London. Um, yeah, I got, got more into it with Vlad and, and uh, met Vitalik uh, around, let's, yeah, that was like 2016 at the time. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a, a very interesting project. And like, yeah, again, the, the ability to do, to write dApps that, Mm. Um, yeah, can do anything based on a consensus output. Was uh, that's when I really got into it. Why? I want to go back a little bit further. Like, why security? What was it about? Like, tell me a little bit more about your background and what attracted you to security. Yeah, exactly. so I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a long story, and I think it's a maybe. I feel like it's a similar story to a lot of people who get into security very early on. And by that, I mean age-wise. I think I started learning programming when I was like 11 or so. And really, for me, security uh, was fun because it's not not for just for the sake of security itself. You know, of course, having security skills is fun in certain ways, but it's also kind of fun to get go through the process of learning security itself because it's really about... Mm figuring out puzzles, right? Security, the way that I view it is like, you know, if you, whatever, whether you're trying to find the flaw in a system or reverse engineer a product, you, you start with a, a black box view of something or, or something where you only have a vague notion of what, um, what you're trying to achieve or what the thing that you are trying to find out about um, is. And you you go through the process of discovery, trying to think of, okay, the person who made the system, what were they thinking? Or, you know, like this thing that I'm trying to reverse engineer, what's it made of? What are the parts that, compri that comprise it? Um, and, you know, you, you have to sort of try to be in the mindset of the person who created it. And, you know, that's why there's that adage of like, it's easy to write something, but to be able to find flaws in it, you have to actually be better uh, than the person who wrote it um, in the sense of like having a, a broader overview um, of it, the capabilities, you know, like uh, the, I think the adage goes something like if you write the best code you can, you won't be smart enough to debug it. That's a really kind of neat way to think about it, that you have to get inside 
the mind of the person who created it in order to actually do these types of audits. Uh-huh. Do you also feel like in, I mean, we, we did uh, an interview with Trail of Bits with JP from Trail of Bits a few months ago. And one of the questions that I had at the time was like, is there, is there sort of a characteristic of an auditor? Is there a character, is there something like, or maybe a security, somebody who's interested in security? Is there like, is there an, a drive to break it? Like, do you want to, like, what, what else is going on there? Um, I think maybe like less a drive to break things, but sort of, again, just more the inquisitive mindset. And, you know, and I think honestly, like the space now is kind of being over, populated by security people in a sense i think the amount of people who are quite good at security is always much smaller than the amount of people who say that they're good at security um especially when it's it's a very lucrative position to be in um like it always is in, in the world in general but like especially so in the blockchain space um but like it's it's in, first and foremost it's always inquisitiveness it's like the way you get good at security really is by uh delving into the black boxes that people just accept as being black boxes right you're like okay uh, whether it's a blockchain, smart contracts, or a web server, whatever whatever you're trying to analyze, you know the normal developer goes, "Oh, the EVM is a black box." Actually, I'm, and they're not really aware of it, other than the fact that it's this component that the compiler interacts with, um, or you know, this web server is a black box, and I don't know what sockets are beyond the fact that they let me communicate, you know, to servers across the internet. And the person who has the inquisitive mindset says, "Hmm, I'm not happy with just that condensed assumption." I want to understand actually what what are the moving parts on this foundation that I rely on, right? And often, because the people who use these foundations as black boxes, and they don't really understand them, or the person who explained to them didn't understand them, and they get this strange set of assumptions that aren't actually correct, uh, you make a mistake because you are assuming functionality that isn't there or vice versa. And so... This this ability, this inquisitiveness to saying, you know, okay, what's 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 a compiler do, right? And what how does the kernel work, or how does the EVM call system work? Whatever whatever it is that you're looking at gives you a bottom up look that really shows you, you know, like the way people are thinking are mistakenly thinking about, um, you know, their their foundations, and so you can exploit that. That's my impression, too, that, I mean, the, there's two categories of people here that you're talking about. One is just trying to use something to, to get something done. Like, their goal is to build this business and become profitable or some other mm -hmm. aspect. Whereas the other type of person is trying to learn something, like, at a deep level. And I believe that one of the best ways to learn something is to try to break it. Like, find out where the boundaries of some... Uh, abstraction lie or you know try to dig in and figure out like can i actually find some flaw with this thing because to find yeah. the flaw you actually have to learn it really well mm -hmm. yeah exactly and then and yeah i think it's like sometimes it's it's been street as like hey i want to break all the everything that i can but it's actually more like curiosity again that curiosity and criticismness like you look at a system and, and you're thinking okay like for dvm for example it's like hmm okay i can call into other accounts what happens if I call into the same account, right? It's this thing. It's like, what's what happens if I do this non-standard intuitive thing? I'm curious about the outcome. And then generally, because generally when people are trying to do develop, they're only really thinking about going from A to B. And so they'll cover mainly the obvious cases like, oh, I'll call into another account. Um, like, for example, in Ethereum, for, you can create a transaction from a normal account where the, the source of the transaction and the target of the transaction are the same. Um, 
So it's like, oh, what happens if you do that? You know, does the system break? Is a self-target transaction work differently? Um, you know, and like most of the edge cases are obviously been caught in Ethereum, but actually, you know, it's it's you would be surprised by the amount of times that systems go live without catching even very shallow edge cases. So speaking about Ethereum, and I mean, you obviously have a lot of background in, in there and, and being from the security background as well. Like Anna said, we've talked about security on this podcast before, but we what we haven't talked a lot about is actually security on this like protocol layer level. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, what's the security processes and pra- practices around building a client? I mean, there's obviously a lot of stuff that can go wrong here. And, uh, you know, with your background, like what is the, what has the security of the Ethereum client and then multiple clients been and how has that developed over time? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's, it's a, a, a lot of work to make sure that clients, clients don't just crash or have really obviously exploitable bugs or subtly exploitable bugs that, you know, have much more damage than you would imagine. And maintaining like a live blockchain network is very different to maintaining kind of almost any kind of other software. Even a lot of people always compare it to hey, banking security versus, uh, you know, blockchain security, but it's not the same at all because banking is a closed loop system, right? You have like these large firewalls where, um, you know, it's like, it's hard to penetrate the first layer, but then after that, it's, it's actually quite easy to do. And it's like a trusted network on the inside. And from that perspective, you know, if something goes wrong, they can reverse it. It's closed and then it's not public. Whenever you lose money or there's fraud, who, you know, we, we don't hear about 90% of the stuff versus in the blockchain space, every single thing that happens is public. And so that's a double-edged sword. Like uh, if there's ever any public issue, it's going to get exploited pretty quickly. And you really, really, really have an extremely structured and disciplined uh, process for developing on these networks. You can't just merge PRs in and, and say like, oh, we'll test that later. Or, you know, we, this looks simple enough. We, we don't, you know, we, we, can, we can just deploy it and, and, and see what happens. Or, uh, yeah, you can't take a laissez-faire approach to any of this, um, even especially when you have multiple client implementations. If the two diverge, then there's a hard fork in the network. Um, the way that it's done at the foundation is that we have this uh, large testing framework called Hive, um, anytime that there's like significant change to the code base, an extension, or, or two, two features that most more than one client has to implement, um, you know, we have the these um, sort of permutative generation for <laughs> inputs to the EVM, and so it's you have to take, for example, parity and guess, and you run like hundreds of instances of those in parallel with different inputs. Of, like you know, uh, one set of inputs for guess and the same set of inputs for parity, and see if they ever fork. Um, you know, and try to do call stack recursion and stuff like that. And, you know, that's caught like a lot of really, um, really, really complex, subtle stuff that, you know, you would not have caught as a human um, and because it's just too, too hard to follow the, the trace in your head. And so, you know, we try to sort of preempt the attackers by using the same tools the attackers may use, but on, on our own pull requests and, and feature additions and so on. And I want to... Sorry, I want to ask you, so just sort of to go back to what you were saying before, where it's like banks will usually have these like very impenetrable mm-hmm. layers. And once you get in, it's quite easy to mess it up. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is like the entire 
all security is almost equally valued, maybe, because it's all possible. There's way more attack surface, I imagine. What is comparable? You sort of, I think you just compared banks to this sort of open source thing is like, no, that isn't comparable. What would be comparable? Or or maybe there isn't anything. But like, I'm just sort of curious if there's an, like another model that people can think about. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is actually other decentralized networks, which like Tor, for example, Freenet, or I2P, or or whatever you did, actually, not really BitTorrent, but um, yeah, other networks that like rely on sort of like at least keeping some semblance of honest majority. And I, by, by, by honest majority, it's not really the same in like Tor, for example, but like safe functioning majority. Um, and, and, you know, like a, a flaw in that can easily be exploited. And, and those are kind of high value networks to exploit in certain ways. But it's, it's not really comparable because, again, if you take down Tor, what you, what's going to happen? I mean, like, Right, like okay, a bunch of weird darkness, like go down, fine. But like if you if you take down ETH, you know you you take you know like you can massively profit from shorting the market beforehand, right? So I think like the amount of value that uh, first of all the amount of activity, the surface of the activity that goes on, and the surface of the code that is live, and the amount of profit you can make by messing with these networks is is uncomparable to really anything else as far as like oh, oh wow, is it? I mean, is there almost like a wild westness to it right now? Do you find? Um, I think so, in the sense that just like we you know, we're still very early on. Um, the the ecosystem is fairly mature, especially from a security perspective, um, both from like uh, how educated the public is, and how how you know the average, even the average person on the how many people there are who can actually understand the more intricate details of maintaining these networks. So it is, um, it's it is. There isn't like, oh, here's a set of things that I have to follow when launching a blockchain network. It's more like, here's this sort of set of deep esoteric knowledge that only a few people have. And the only people who have it is the ones that maintain the live networks. So that's something that I actually talk a lot about, maybe not on this podcast, but in, in my life. <laughs> is uh, like, how do we get more people into the client work? So that's something that I think is super crucial. There are these tools that you were talking about, like Hive, there's fuss testing libraries, there's so many efforts going into testing. Um, and But generally, like there's just not enough people that understand all of these things. And we all have limited resources. Like the EF doesn't have infinite money. Parity doesn't have infinite money. They're, like A lot of the clients are completely volunteer basis. They can't you know, put 10 people on implementing every possible security measure. So how do you like balance that... Um, property of like wanting to be a decentralized open source platform yet maintaining security i I think it's really hard and it it just requires us to have more people involved um it is hard but i but i don't think it's necessarily a money thing i mean like i think a lot of these uh entities have more money than they're using on on people but it's, it's actually just hard to find the people um you know this blockchain is still an emerging space um, it's also very complex. Like, if you if working at, at that level, you know, the client implementation level is is going beyond most of the abstractions that most people who interact with blockchains are comfortable with. Uh, so, it's you have to understand. Well, you have to like be quite good at like careful coding and understanding security models, like understanding you know game theory, crypto economics. Depending on like you know if you want if you're making decisions on to like you know which which features to extend, um, cryptography. Um, you know, like peer-to-peer networking, um, decentralized systems design in general. It's 
it's a lot of stuff to grasp at the same time. And again, the fact that it is kind of like a speculative field still does, it prevents a lot of people from getting into it. I think, you know, the, the, the set of people comfortable with speculative uh, areas, like speculative fields like this that are so broad and also so, so risky is, is not great. Uh, and the people who actually have the capabilities and are comfortable to work on this stuff. And, you know, it's still, you know, I think we're like a, a little bit in a bubble, not a bubble of like, you know, value, but I think in a bubble of um, uh, people who work in crypto, we're in a, a sort of a little bit of a bubble of opinion, you know, the average person. Optimism. Kind of, yeah. The average person still kind of thinks blockchains are like, meh, right? Like they're eh, what's like, okay, great. Like I see the, I see articles about the price, but like, what are they really delivered? Right. What the actual use of blockchain? And it's like, okay, you know, there's actually massive use cases, um, and, and like stuff that is going to be built. But for now, you know, actually we're still definitely in the, uh, in the early alpha R and B phase in, in terms of, you know, like usage. Uh, so like a lot of people who would be in, who would have the skills to come in and, and work on some of this stuff don't have the inclination to because blockchains is still a, a, a too much smoke for them. I think that's a good point. And I think there are tons of people who are certainly skilled enough to get involved. Uh, but to your point, one is like it's, it's not perhaps that attractive compared to other things they can do. Uh, but the other thing that I've actually heard from several talented people that I've talked to is that they refuse to get involved in the blockchain space because it's so toxic. <laughs> it's just yeah. trolls everywhere and like you have no idea what's going on and like what's true, what's false. And, and it's it's a very it is a very toxic environment. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I would say yeah. I would say less toxic, more just noisy. Right. Like as a as an environment that where being able to mislead a per one one person or 10 people or 100 people that can have very good economic return of course then you'll have like all these uh scammers and and whatever vultures crawling out who do their best to mislead everyone as much as possible like what you know iota or whatever and so it's yeah it's a very noisy space i think if you and like looking at it from the outside in it's a it's a complete disaster um, but if you know how to filter and, you know, like between the people who are just noisy and the people actually working on things that, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit more spectacle, but it's, it's hard to know where to apply that filter if you've not, if you're not in it already. Yeah. Jumping back a little bit to the issue of like core clients, um, security and process around that. I'd like to just get your opinion on sort of what are the benefits and the problems of having multiple implementations? So, I mean, I really only see one big problem, which is like, you know, if there's a two, if there's an issue implementation difference between the two biggest clients, then, you know, you have a fork and then that's, that's a bit of annoying. That's a bit annoying, but I honestly think, and of course, you know, like more spread out resources development versus like one cohesive platform, whatever. But I, I really think that the pros massively outweighed, uh, which the pros being that, you know, if there's an issue, uh, in one of the clients, and, and at least one of the clients implements protocol correctly, then you can keep that one as a canonical chain. And then, like you know, uh, it, most people who are have heavy exposure to the ecosystem, either way, they always run two clients in parallel, right? Like all exchanges run both guests in parity, and if they disagree, they freeze transfers. And that's great because if one of them disagrees and one of them, you know, like made a transfer, allowed a transfer that wasn't supposed to be happening, then 
it's much better to freeze transfers than let it withdrawal go through that should never have gone through because that's not reversible after that, right? Um, or if that withdrawal causes a deposit in a bank account and then the guy withdraw and you know it takes too long for to for people to realize it and the guy runs away with like cash it out, it's that's over. Like that exchange has lost that money or whatever whatever you're exposed to. So and and also like you get the massive benefit that the protocol stays clean bitcoin if we try to reimplement bitcoin there's because only bitcoin core was used for the lar like you know forever there's so many bugs that are part of the canonical protocol now because there were bugs in the core client and there was no other client and so they just became part of the canonical protocol and it's actually very hard and messy now to reimplement bitcoin from scratch versus ethereum is not the same right like the only there's some weird stuff in there like yeah the dao uh, um, irregular state transfer and uh, that's maybe like one or two quirks that weren't caught uh, up until later on, later on and they're like okay well we have to change this back now to account for that but I mean it's as a protocol it's far 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 cleaner than Bitcoin and it, you know reading just the yellow paper you could write a client it can't it can't maybe sync from scratch but it can it can process the current chain you can do that without too much difficulty there's a spec that cleanly defines the current protocol. Hmm question about the, how this compares like the multiple clients so you're saying bitcoin has basically one client mm -hmm. one there's one main active client we also have an implementation there are several others but yeah to matt's points they're like hard to implement because of these quirks and then ethereum has two set like can canonical uh, clients are there other uh protocols like do you have examples where there's like really like a whole a handful of clients like other protocols I don't think so. I, I, I think Ethereum is like the only one with a large enough uh, developed ecosystem to have more than one implementation. Um, really? Bitcoin doesn't have more than one just because like uh, the Bitcoin core. Um, well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things you could say about the Bitcoin community, but they seem to be really attached to this idea of one client implementation for some reason. And I think it's probably because Satoshi said some things once on a forum and then like, the, you know, now it's just like, that's it forever. Um, but yeah, whatever. So Bitcoin only has one. I think Ethereum is only the only one that has like two main ones. I mean, in the top 10, like if you just take the top 10 coins by market cap, like what? I mean, I don't think Litecoin has more than one client. Um, you know, some of them top 10 are not even live. Neo, I'm, I'm fairly sure only has one. Um, EOS only has one, uh, what, you know, which rarely works in itself. Um, Cardano is not live. What else is there, right? Like, there's nothing else that's even. And then, besides the top 10, like, there's like what 10 people who know about the project on like technical level. So it's uh, not really. A, I think hmm, does Bitcoin yeah. Cash have more than one client? Maybe not. Um, but yeah, that's it. Bitcoin right? Bitcoin Cash that's, actually that's, does run. I don't know what the percentage is, but a significant number of people use Parity Bitcoin to run Bitcoin Cash. Um, okay, that's interesting. And it was sort of the same thing. Like Parity Bitcoin was initially. Like the initial motivation was that one, uh, some miner actually wanted it. So there exists miners that are running anything other than Bitcoin Core, but it's super rare. And mm -hmm. like, it's like Bitcoin is a one client thing, really. Uh, Ethereum is certainly furthest ahead by any means, I think, because like there's two main ones, but there's also like a, a handful of other implementations, either like done or in the works. And, in terms of like the live network impact, those might as well exist. Like, yeah. you know, I know that there's like Python ETH, but it's mostly just used like as a, you know, as a testing environment. And then, you know, yeah, there's this other stuff that's coming up and like the one project, what is it? The one with such sort of T, um, whatever, like the other Python one. And, you know, there's a few, there's a handful in it, or the Java one for, for sure. But like, 
no, they're not used at all. On the, uh, they're not used at all in the live. But I think to the uh, to the other like um, point of is this something that blockchains are looking at? I think it definitely is. Like when I talk to other blockchain projects, a lot of them are saying that they would want multiple implementations. Zcash mm-hmm. is also looking at having multiple implementations. So I think that's it is something that the community at large kind of have accepted as a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think Bitcoin Cash is obviously more more sort of accepting of it because like their main gripe was that Bitcoin Core was the only client. So I think it would be strange for them to also only prefer one client. Um, but yeah, like I think, yeah, it's like even if the other ones do want multiple implementations, there's just not enough devs um, who are ex- like... Uh, intimate enough with the protocol to do an actual production, and, you know, and doing like a toy implementation is very different from being able to do a production one. Like in Ethereum, it's getting harder and harder to do that. Yeah, for sure. Jumping back to the issues here, though. So, like you said, if there's a consensus issue, con- like a consensus bug, um, that's a big thing. It could lead to a fork. That doesn't like a fork isn't you know end of the world. It, we could fix it. Like there's other there's possibly things we could do but that that's the question it was like what is the process if there is an issue um so yeah i mean you do definitely have to have like a a, a set of people who are on call at the very least um i think in ethereum a lot of it has been um partly volunteer based um you know like you know in in the in the in the dao hack in the uh, in the parity multi-stick hacks both times um, and some, you know, like smittering of issues that have been more minor that has have not have like used coverage because you know they they were sorted before they became large. Um, you know, it's been some people from the foundation, like Martin, since he started. Um, I helped out on some, and and also you know like uh, people like the White Hat group. You know, during the DAO hack, sort of they've had a they've helped in every once in a while here and there. And you know, like I guess when you have a good cohesive community, like having a good cohesive community that really is realist about like the problems that the protocol has and, and have like, you know, I guess, you know, if you are invested in the community and you care about it, whether monetarily or, or otherwise you have also, uh, it's in your best interest to try to help out in these, in these circumstances. But um, yeah, you know, like uh, the, 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 the sort of the, com- the community Ethereum has, has been able to pull through, pull Ethereum through a lot of um, like bad edge case, like, well, bad, you know, cases in, in the past, in the past few years. And, I I want to I actually want to ask you about a couple of those like maybe we can talk about some stories but before we do that I just was wondering like it, like just for for us to to be maybe better understand like when an issue happens like what how does that like what starts it like basically it's found and it's communicated I'm just curious a little bit about that that sort of initial process given that you've been that you've sort of seen a couple of these go down so generally like um, it depends, right? It's, it kind of depends on the issue, but like um, for so, so for the party multisig, you know, somebody, I think the first time it happened, um, like the, uh, it was somebody took money out of a wallet that should not have, they should not have been able to do so. So whoever noticed money missing from their wallet initially contacted somebody who then contacted somebody at IDF and, and sort of, you know, we all started working on the problem and, uh, like the again, the first time the white hat group was able to get some scripts together really quickly to drain all of the wallets and, and and you know restore the money such that like the advantage was minimized and you know again being able to do the, being able to have people who who can do this quickly um, and and you can trust them to do so um, and like ha- having them be faster than the attackers is is very valuable. 
Is there almost like two, there's almost a two pronged approach then. So like something happens, you have the white hat hacker group, which will actually go and try to replicate what the hacker is doing. But then are you also, do you also have like a security group that like is kicked up or like that's uh, so yeah i mean like martin you know basically is the, is the leading force now at the foundation uh, i think uh i think in the first party of multi-sig he had uh he hadn't been around for that long but um yeah i mean he basically leads that effort now um you know generally we try to we try to have tooling that monitors the blockchain so that we are the first ones to know about it right like again for example we have um uh like we we the foundation runs its own guest nodes and, you know, if the yes, crashes, uh, if there's like, you know, like repeated crashes or a slowdown, um, you know, there's like a ratio of like how long a block should take versus the amount of gas used in that block. If that ratio goes too high, okay, that looks a bit off. Is that a DOS attack? What, what transaction caused the slowdown? So, you know, we do, uh, there's like a lot of investment, uh, time investment and effort investment in being able to pick things up before somebody else does. Um, uh, and but also you know like it, it, a lot of it does rely on customer community goodwill. Like for example, in the well, I don't know. Like this was pretty recent. It may have been only a few months ago. Um, Parity had an issue in their implementation, which where they enabled uh, an EIP on the mainnet because of a logic bug in the code. They enabled it before it, you know like the hard fork. It should not have been enabled, and so they actually it was a fairly damaging one if it had gone unnoticed. I mean, it would have caused a hard fork, but uh, depending on if it, maybe there's an, if there's like an exchange or two that only, that only run parity, the EIP was actually um, the ability to make transactions without a signature. It's like, it's the e account abstraction EIP, which is basically you can make a, you can submit a transaction that has no signature and it looks like it's coming from the 000 address. And so, uh, somebody submitted that on the test net, right? Like they, obviously the test net and the main net runs the same code. And, uh, like it was, somebody noticed it. It wasn't because you could see, like, if you look in the test net, you could see transaction out from zero, zero, zero address. And unlikely that anybody has found the private key for that address. So there's gotta be a bug somewhere. And, uh, and, you know, and, uh, so, so yeah, you know, whoever noticed it sort of pinged us on, on the security channel where sort of we have all the client implementers and, and people sort of, you know, who, who are relevant to be in the main security chat. And, uh, yeah, it's like, okay, where's the bug? Okay. It's here. Uh, okay. Do the PR really quickly and try to deploy as soon as possible. And you know, you also have to make sure that you organize around, uh, that announcement and deployment, because once you deploy the PR to fix it, then, uh, anybody can look at the PR and see like, oh, I see the issue, right? And then, and then like, if they the, if they try to um, sort of deploy the exploit before the, everybody has updated, then you know you have an issue. So it's it's, it's actually you've got to manage the communication really well and cohesively. Um, but you know, it's actually also again, there's a there's a the funny thing is that the, the transaction on the testnet was it was only like you know a twenty byte transaction, and because there's um in in the latest version of Ethereum, the protocol the there's like a re anti-replay byte right so if there's a byte that is a protocol id and if that protocol id does not match the current chain the, the chain will not accept that transaction right and so you would only have taken this 20 bytes of hex and if you knew where the byte where the position of that byte was change it from like an a to like a zero and then that would have been deployable on the main chain and would have forked the chain now like you know a, a few hours 10 hours probably 12 hours passed nobody did that um and you know, then the main chain didn't work, thankfully. Um, right? Which is also like it also kind of shows like it would have been. There's a lot of enemies to ease, right? And again, you know, being able to short the market before you know that 
when you know that it's happening and 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 forking the main chain what if like maybe you, you probably could have profited some but all the people who knew how to do it were of goodwill enough not to do it and now and the people who didn't there's even though there's massive economic benefit there's so few people that know how to do this that it didn't happen right so it's wow. like again going to the question of like okay like what uh why isn't there more people working on this stuff it's like well you know even when there's like a massive benefit to uh you know being on the attacker side there's that there's there's obviously limited uh time people have and, and ethereum is apparently still a lot of priority even for attackers there are some very very sophisticated attackers that ha that you know like um target ethereum for sure um but you know i guess even they have limited time it's also i think it was uh hard like in advance to see how to exploit it like you would have to kind of plan out this attack and do all the shorting and do you know a variety of things and the benefit is uh unsure like even if you short it are you absolutely sure that the price will drop will it drop enough to be worth you know there's all these sort of, sort of questions around it um yeah I mean, maybe i mean I, I don't know uh i, I actually i think like uh, the chaos i mean if you had like any kind of money on exchange if you did if you did manage the fortune network i think the chaos ensued would have like at least i don't know would have been okay i think i think you could actually have, have made some profit from it but um yeah i mean but i think there is so there's another there or there would have been so like a small correction i don't think the issue is that um this eip was implemented it, it was like a problem in the implementation of it so there was like essentially a one line if statement missing uh that would have like rejected this transaction mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh you you like you said it was you could actually make a transfer i think it was from the xerox ff so the the last address uh All right, and yes, right. basically the, that address has a bunch of tokens in it uh that have been mm -hmm. sent to like be burnt so you could move mm -hmm. those tokens and that would be like a direct profitable way to to possibly yeah actually something. yeah but then you're, you're right actually it was actually not that easy either because while a lot of smart contracts do pretend to do that to send the amounts to zero xff a lot of contracts just delete the burn them and then emit a transfer event that makes it seem like they sent it to there right yeah. so figuring out which contracts actually sent it versus which contract burned it uh, would have also take, probably taken in like more time than than yeah so i mean if we'd left it up for weeks or months after it was known then someone would have figured out a way to profit profitably attack but given that it's fixed within a couple hours it's maybe not yeah. so easy it's i mean sometimes sometimes it actually surprises me there's there's actually like there's a lot of blockchains that are der derivatives of each other like you know monero had a um early 2017 perhaps they had a uh, bug in their implementation of EDT ED25519, so the, the signature that they use, the curve they use for signatures. And so you could take a signature. So I, so for example, like I could have some Monero, I could pay myself Monero to my own address. And that's like, you know, you have this ring signature. And then I could take a VAT ring signature and multiply the signature by eight, basically. I mean it's a bit more complex than this, but you could do you can multiply by the eight. And you could get a new signature that is valid, but the, the software would, would not distinguish from the old signature um, because again, it didn't check for this cofactor thing. And, and you would be able to just basically mint yourself infinite money by just like, you know, doing this repeatedly. So send yourself hundred Monero, multiply the signature by it, redeploy that, and you will get another hundred Monero. And um, you know, like nobody found this apparently ever because it was never used on the chain. But so a lot of blockchains, I think like Byte, um, 
this byte ball or whatever, like use a, like the similar code base that whenever uses for these signatures um, or they whatever they had the same bug, right? And they weren't fixed for weeks um, because again they don't have on on call. Uh, teams for this, or like they weren't aware that they were using the same derivative, and you know sometimes it actually takes many days for all these other blockchains to get exploited, even though one of the major blockchains just patched, you know, pub published the patch. So yeah, it's 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 quite interesting, um, you know, like if, when you're around, in and around this stuff to see like you know what what the hell. <laughs> when it comes to so you just sort of mentioned a case where yeah you just mentioned this Monero case, but like as an auditor. Are there things that kind of keep you up at night? Are there parts of maybe the EVM or some contracts you've seen where you're like, this is going to be a problem? Like, does um, anything keep you up at night? So like in the EVM, I'm actually fairly comfortable with that. I think like if there's anything exploitable there, it's so edge casey that it's like extremely unlikely that somebody will find it. And that uh, it's, well, it's more likely that somebody who works on the, if in in the Ethereum security would find it, right? Then like the random third party. Um, it's pretty, like we're pretty okay. Um, I think we're not, it's actually not perfect, but like the, the low hanging fruits are gone by now, but a lot of them. And um, for as far as smart contract goes, I mean, generally when I write something that's like greater than a thousand lines, I start feeling uncomfortable. Um, it's, hmm. I mean, there's different ways to write smart contracts, but uh, like a good a good example, you know, is uh, the Gnosis multisig. I, I like how that's constructed. It's it's basically just an interface to some very well defined concrete atomic operations, and you can easily like follow the flow. and And the functions don't do a ton; they only do exactly what they need to do. Um, and that's that's good design. A lot of contra contracts that make uncomfortable are like. If you have a contract that, that depends on like four different subcontract protocols outside of the contract creator's control, because now not only are you expect um, you know relying on Ethereum to function correctly and, and and relying on the fact that you assume Ethereum functions the way that you do, you're relying on these four other protocols to function correctly. So you know, for example, things are built on ZeroX, and then that also use um, you know like Augur or whatever, right? Then it's like the number of, of failure points are increasing exponentially each time you do that. Anytime you have like functions that are like 500 lines, like just know that please don't write smart contracts like that. Functions, you know, like reduce your functionality as much as possible. Do as much as possible uh, on off chain. Um, don't do, don't be doing crazy math or stuff that has like you know weird that could have really weird mathematical edge cases in, in a smart contract, right? You know, very complex call chains that rely that have to rely on like a lot of things happening at once. Um, yeah, I mean, like you know, things like Augur would make me, make me nervous. You know, I, I'd be like, I'd be waking up at night if I, uh, I had if I was managing the Augur project. Um, uh, you know, I, I also think these a lot of these projects don't don't do enough testing, and like, and also I don't really count pre live testing as testing because, um, like, as long as you. And bug bounties also don't really work that well, right? Because hmm. yeah, we we actually on another episode we talked a little bit about test nets and like having non-value yeah exactly bearing tokens. It's difficult to actually get actors to act as they actually would. Yeah, for sure. And I think like I think and I, I don't know why nobody does this really, but what I would suggest you know if you're if you're trying to deploy a large system, especially like a new blockchain, is instead of just doing a test net, do a test net where like um, you know you you have a smart contract like okay like put a smart contract in ethereum right and and then that like allows you to somehow 
a proof on this testnet allows you to unlock some value on Ethereum, right? And so make it so that you run this testnet for one month, and at the end of the testnet, like if you if you have managed to get an irregular state transition to happen, right, or, or whatever, or you can prove that the network was down for some amount of time, then you can like unlock the value on the main chain, right? And that's a lot. That's a lot more, and the value has to be substantial as well, especially if you're trying to run launch like a billion dollar network. And that's like far more on along the line. You're more operating al along the lines of a real network, but like with with damage control, right? Um, it's the valueless network test network test nets. The only people who are interacting with it are going to be people interested in your project. You're not going to get you're not going to get the same attacker. Well, yeah. This is something we talked about in the test net episode as well. That you could you could launch a test net bridge it to the mainnet so you kind of have a value bearing test net so if you manage to steal the test token you can use the bridge to kind of extract ether from it yes yes exactly and i think that's that's really great um i mean you know people should start doing this things like this especially if they're launching large networks also like uh, you know people launching especially blockchain projects today are like a huge disadvantage because there's like a few conflicting um I don't know, methodologies of work that you have to like apply, which is on the one hand, you know, the blockchain space moves really fast. You have competitors who already have light networks that can probably move much faster than you have. They have more talent than you and so on. On the other hand, you can't move really fast because you don't have enough people. And also you, you like, the more you do development without security in mind, without a process in mind where you're going to actually deploy this network live as a blockchain, the more you're like accruing, I wouldn't, you know, like there's the concept of technical debt, but this is worse. It's kind of like, you know, security debt, right? Like, okay, okay, oh, this is this, like, okay, we're trying to implement this feature or something changed. Okay, fine, you know, we'll, we'll just change this thing without retesting the whole thing or rewriting all the tests. And okay, all right, oh, this is, uh, we need, we're having this deadline to meet, right? Okay, this would have, wish this should have happened. This should have had like one week of review, but we'll only do one day, right? And then, Okay, fine, but it has had a review, and then people assume, oh, that's fine, that stuff is safe, that stuff is safe, that stuff is safe, and, you know, I'm doing an audit for, uh, like, a blockchain platform at the moment, and, I mean, I, I won't say who it is, but uh, they are, like, you know, they kind of have um, developed in this way, and it's, you can really see this, this effect happening when you're trying to meet a deadline with not enough resources, it's, and, you know, it's a good thing that they, they you know, like, they're doing a, an audit, um, and to, to solve these issues, but and you know, I, I have confidence that once we finish this audit, the the it'll be like like safe safe enough for like an initial run. But a lot of companies, you know, are launching these blockchains without ever getting an audit from like on their whole uh, protocol, or at least not getting an audit from somebody competent. And then they have go live with this false sense of security, and it's a disaster because once somebody looks at that code base with experienced eyes of like what bugs a blockchain platform has and they're not going to find one bug you're going to find about a hundred of them and then like you know you you, you you that's like that's enough to kill your platform you know like i release a zero day it takes your platform down you patch it i release it the zero and the next zero day one second later and then let's say you know i can take your whole blockchain account for like three days straight it's you're gone so you know and that's like that's like you know us is a good example of that um you're so you're talking about like how the kind of the importance of audits here, but are you, have you also thought about like, like basically how do audits compare to academic peer review? Is that also something that you've thought of? So it's, it's, um, I would say like the, the different, different concerns for sure. Um, like there's a difference between adding the code base and, and like analyzing a protocol, right? Like for, um, if you, you know, like if you are 
deploying a new protocol like Casper, um, then yes, you, you should get the actual protocol itself, especially if it has, if it, you know, if it's trying to assure some game theoretic um, security, get that analyzed on an academic level or, or something or as close to that as possible, right? It doesn't actually have to be from academics, but like with that rigor. Um, but if you're, if you're writing code, right? Like that's, I mean, if so academic peer review for me is only for things that, uh, you're trying to, you're trying to prove a thing is, can be secure or a thing is possible, right? Like if, if the common knowledge is not that this thing is possible, right? If you have convinced of the literature that I think it's possible, that's when you want a peer review. But if you're like just doing something that you know is possible, like implementing a blockchain client, you don't need that. You need a peer review, right? You just want the, the code audited so that, you know, the code actually reflects the intent and, and sort of the, the description of the code. And um, that, you know, honestly, I, I feel like for, especially for the larger projects, the model of like one-off audits is, is not correct. You shouldn't just get an audit every month or every three months or every six months. You should just hire a security person in-house, preferably more than one, right? As something, again, like something as, as sensitive as a live platform needs cons, you need, like every PR needs to be reviewed. Your devs need to be taught how to code uh, for this type of environment. Um, the process has to change. You, you, it's not a, security is not a Band-Aid, right? You don't, it's not, it's not a thing at the end of the tunnel. It has, it's something that you have to keep in mind for every line of code you write. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's also <clears throat> the difficulty, I think, in getting those people in a house is that the the person looking at it kind of needs a different set of eyes than the person who wrote it. Like someone wrote it with mm -hmm. something in mind. So the other person looking at it should look at it from a different perspective. That's hard when everyone is in like the same company. But I think it's it's obviously totally possible. Um but I think, yeah, going back to your point on peer review versus auditing as well, I mean, it's it's basically the difference between saying, you know, this protocol is sound versus this is a sound implementation of that protocol. And uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like sometimes I wish some uh, projects actually got like a peer review of their basics because it feels like they haven't really thought things through and like they're starting starting with an implementation when it's like, uh, will this actually like work on a fundamental level? Um, mm -hmm. But certainly, like, I'd say most projects, especially like that are building on top of Ethereum, where the foundations are already sort of known, um, peer review is uh, not really yeah. necessary. And, and yeah, and I think actually, like, uh, and there's there's also this sort of a mistaken assumption in this space that like, oh, if something is live and I can use it today, then that's that's it has proven itself to work on a fundamental level, but it's definitely not the case. Um, what what you if it if it if I if I can prove to you, you know, through like analysis formal formal analysis review that the system you're using is broken technically, but you're saying I can use it today, fine. That you're not proving that the system is secure. What you're proving is that the market is irrational or like uninformed, right? Like just because something works today. Absolutely, that does not mean that the fundamentals are secure and it's going to work long term. What it means is that when the market becomes informed enough to take advantage of the arbitrage created by this broken protocol, it will break immediately. But today, the market is just not at that level of um, sophistication yet. Yeah.
And I mean, uh, taking Ethereum as an example, it's a topic we've had several times on this podcast around storage rents, which will mm-hmm. should be called something else because people apparently hate the name. Uh, yeah, but yeah. That, that is sort of like, it, it's on the edge of that kind of like, actually the system is broken, the incentives are not correctly aligned, you know, this is not going to last forever, we need to do something yeah. about it. So on a fundamental level, Ethereum probably doesn't work either, but that said, it's sort of like something we can fix. Yeah, I would say like Ethereum as it is now, the world will not last forever. I think like, of course, you know, then that's the, sort of the point of, of having an active development environment, like the community and, and trying to improve the protocols bit by bit. Um, like, of course, if you think about it, even just from a, uh, from like a very simple, like if you just do like very simple logic is, the fact that I can pay a fixed amount today, whatever that amount is, for storing something on the blockchain forever, that uh, that is effectively free storage, right? Because it's it's if you amortize it over time, then I, I'm paying like an infinitesimal infinitesimal amount for like an, an infinite amount of yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just there. not like economically rational. <laughs> yes, for sure, and. Uh, and yeah, like I think, you know, the storage rent or whatever ends up being called, uh, storage fees, whatever. Uh, it, it, it's the, it's like what's going to have and have to happen eventually. And the, the mantra of like blockchains, you know, have to be immutable forever and you got to keep every single data. I mean, it doesn't actually, doesn't scale. Like, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense in, 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 on a large scale. What you want is to keep data around long enough that you, if you sync up to the chain on an arbitrary day, and you know you can see far back enough in the chain to know to be confident in, in the consensus security, right? But you don't need to keep all data forever, um, and so you know you having the rolling this rolling state model for blockchains is, is fine. What, the value of blockchain does not necessarily keep this data forever, no matter what. And without me having to pay for anything at all for it, the value of blockchains is just having confidence in the consensus security to execute the protocol as stated. It's not, mm. I want block, I want data forever for free. Yeah. And you can like use zero knowledge proofs and whatever other constructs you want to like increase the confidence that this, this state has been generated correctly. So I think there's mm-hmm. like, a, that's an exciting space where things are developing and we're kind of seeing these kind of rolling structures where maybe you back it up with a zero knowledge proof or something else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, like, uh, I guess Ethereum's still small enough and the gap limit is low enough and whatever that like the current, no, the current system without storage fees is fine. But yeah, you know, if you did want to get to, you know, like if you wanted to have, if you wanted to scale the gas limit up to like, you know, 500 million or, or, a, or a billion and, and scale to like, you know, 100 million users, then yes, you definitely start getting storage rent because otherwise the state would bloat itself by like 100 gigabytes a day. Well, cool. I think that's a, that's a good point to end. Matt, thanks for joining us and having this conversation with us. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Cheers. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>